I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how experienced you are. The real world will destroy all your plans. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Maddie Stratton, and I'm talking with Arup Chakrabarty of PagerDuty today about DevOps transformations. But first, we have a word from our sponsors. Chef is a community of professionals practicing DevOps every day. We are making, proving, learning, and shaping the future. We are known for welcoming, encouraging, and liberating others to do the same. We do not talk about change. We do change! Join the community and learn about our solutions at chef.io. This episode is brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 120 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a free 14-day trial at arresteddevops.com slash datadog. The worst time to learn about instant response is during an incident. Don't wait for an outage to strike before getting started. The PagerDuty Instant Response Training Course is now open source and free for everyone at response.pagerduty.com. Based on the same training that PagerDuty employees go through, this course will show you how to streamline your incident response process, turn chaos into calm, and demonstrate the role of an incident commander. So what are you waiting for? Go to response.pagerduty.com today and check it out. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener, there is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. So let's say you've bought into this whole DevOps thing. I'm sorry to tell you that you can't just snap your fingers and ta-da, you are the DevOps. My guest today has a lot of experience helping guide organizations along the way. So Arup, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your experience, and then we'll dive right into it. Yeah, so uh, hi everyone, my name is Arup, uh, currently a Director of Engineering at PagerDuty. Uh, before PagerDuty, I've been at large-scale consumer companies like Amazon and Netflix that have been doing you know, the DevOps <laughs> for a long time. And you know, one of the things that, that really drew me to, to PagerDuty originally was this idea of helping a lot of our customers achieve a similar level of amazing business results by going through these kinds of transformations. And so you know, I feel like I've seen how the, the, the best and the brightest do this. And, and that's something at PagerDuty that I get a lot of joy out of is helping a lot of our customers uh, go through these transformations and supporting them along the way. Awesome. So let's, let's start with the million-dollar question which is, where do we start when we're trying to affect a change like this in an organization? Where's, where's, what's step zero? I, you know, I think the, the first 
and I'll, you know, I'll probably sound like a, a a broken record here, but it's always start small. You know, it's always start with, you know, a single team or a single project or a single code base or or something where, you know, instead of thinking about it as the like, well, how are we going to get this entire, you know, 100,000, 10,000 person department doing the DevOps instead think, well, how can I start with my team? How can I start with an area that I have direct influence over? And if you're, let's say in a management position that usually looks like, you know, one or two teams that you work with, if you're in an engineering individual contributor position that probably looks more like, let me start with this one project or this one code base. And, and th- those are all great places to start. So that's, you know, step zero is acknowledging that the, the best recipe for success is you want to start, start small. I think after that, you know, it's, it's really starting to figure out, you know, who are your, your champions that have kind of the same level of conviction that you have around DevOps and, and a different way of working. Who in the organization is like-minded like you? And that usually means that you know, you've probably sent out some emails in the past of ways we have to change. And those are the people replying with the like, you know, fuck yeah, let's do this. and very excited. Um, or maybe you have to build some champions. And what I find helps a lot there is giving them a lot of context around, hey, like, you know, here's a crazy change I'm thinking about, but here's why I think this is a change that we need. Um, so, the, you know, I find like starting from a, from more that, that, that starting small and then figuring out who are your allies in this journey, like that helps so much because something I tell a lot of, you know, leaders that I work with that, you know, a lot of this stuff as you get further and further into it, you're going to feel really lonely sometimes where you're going to feel like you're the only one who's advocating for these changes. And if you can build up some of those allies early on, it makes the rest so much easier. I think that's that's a really bang on point about that it can it can feel like a lonely journey, yeah. and a lot of times I will when I talk to people who are going through this or, or starting the transformation, I'd say it makes me think about advice that people would give to someone who was making a movie or writing a book, which is you better love this because there are going to be days that you hate it, and you're gonna there are going to be days that are so hard. And you need to be able to get yourself through it. And if you, if you care about it and it's important to you, you'll be able to pull yourself through. Um, but it's, it can feel very lonely. And it, I, I really like that advice of rallying some allies, having someone who can maybe shoulder some of that for you when you're having those tough days, when you're having those tough times. Because sometimes it does feel like tilting at windmills right? You're, you're going to be, you know, and again, it's, I, I think early, early on in the conversation, it, it, it's a little easier and it's, it's kind of goes from maybe an initial kind of push that's a little rough and then it's, it's not so bad for a little bit. And then it, it gets worse before it gets better. Yeah. And, you know, something I'll, I'll add there is that I find like, you know, if you, like you said, like if you really love something and you have a lot of conviction around it in a really cool way, that's actually what gets others to start having some conviction around it too. Like it almost can become infectious, but you know, one of the things I tell to, I tell a lot of leaders is, you know, kind of counterintuitively, if you start going down the route of some of these changes, you're likely to have some negative business impact in the short term. And, and most leaders say like, you know, what, how they usually manifest is like, you know, increased downtime or, 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 
incidents or something scary like that. But in the long run, that's where you achieve better results for your business and for your teams. But you're right, like you have to have that conviction and that that love for it because it's gonna you're gonna have some very lonely days. You're gonna have some days where you're gonna feel like you're the only sane person in the room, and that's perfectly normal. And the more conviction and the more people you can have up front, the easier it makes those those dark days. So with that, we, we've had a couple, but what are some some actionable tips, some tips or tricks besides rallying some allies, but when you're you're trying to help people understand these, this change, because I think that's a big key part of it, but what are some, some action items that our listeners could take away from? So I think the... The, the first thing is like if, if you're a leader that's proposing this change is really give the give the context around why you think this is the the better way to work and you know one data point that I really like looking at is is number of deploys over a certain period of time and really like tracking that that as a metric and over time trying to trying to increase that so I find for a lot of teams you know if they're doing say yearly releases don't jump again go back to start small don't jump to you know continuous deployment maybe that means like you need to figure out ways to move from yearly to quarterly and and kind of figure out what does that look like um but the reason i harp around number of deploys for a lot of um, our customers even is that i think that's actually a really good proxy for the operation maturity for other aspects of an organization so you know what does um you know what does your incident response processes what do those start to look like or you know as a as an engineer, how much ownership can you really take from an end-to-end code-based operational ownership standpoint? And I think number of deploys is, is kind of the right metric to manage around in the in the beginning. If you can't come up with anything else, if, if you're only trying to optimize for one thing, that I think is a good place to start. Um, if you feel like you have a good handle on that afterward, I think the next best place to start is really trying to figure out, you know, as an organization, what do your SLAs, SLOs, and SLIs look like? And if you're not familiar with that, you know, I highly recommend reading the the, the Google Site Reliability um, book that they released a few years back uh, around, you know, how do you set appropriate ones? And then really figuring out over time, how do you manage against those, those metrics? So that would be another tactic that I'll call out here is as much as you can manage against metrics and use that as as context and to be able to demonstrate some of the results to to the rest of the organization. Uh, One one really powerful thing I saw in the previous companies I worked at and even at PagerDuty was as we were going through some of these transitions, there were probably like two or three metrics that we were looking at. And most of them centered around things like downtime, number of deploys. Uh, At one company, we actually had, you know, amount of revenue that we were not losing anymore as a result of, of, of increased uptime. And we were tracking that over time. So week in, week out, you know, myself along with my my boss and sometimes um, you and some of my teams, we look at that metric and if it went up into the right in the right direction, we'd ask ourselves like, well, did we do anything to change that? And sometimes the answer is no, we didn't do anything. It's a result of a bunch of positive changes we made earlier. Or sometimes it's yes, here's a great step function because we fixed this one problem. Um, and then the reverse happens where, yeah, we screwed up last week and here's what we learned and here's the postmortem. And I find those metrics can be incredibly uh, focusing and it, and it drives kind of the right behaviors of, of making sure that people remain focused and have their eyes on the appropriate I absolutely agree. I think it's, you can't, you can't know if you're moving the needle if you don't have a needle, right? Uh, One thing I want to stress is um, there's not a magic number for deploys a day. 
right? There's a number that's appropriate for your business. So just because you hear that Amazon is releasing 10,000 times a second does not mean that that should be your goal if that's not appropriate to your business outcomes. And I, I, no, I absolutely agree, Maddie. And like, and something to, to kind of, to really point out there, like something I've noticed for a lot of companies that DevOps is different to every company out there and that's okay. And, and I love what you just said, because I think there is a lot of DevOps FOMO out there. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of these great companies doing just amazing things and they go to conferences and they talk about it and something, you know, I, I, I always point out in a lot of conferences when, you know, I'm presenting on behalf of PageDuty is that like, you know, you're not PageDuty. You're not any of the companies that, you know, you saw at a conference and if, and you should have different aspirational goals. So exactly what you said, Maddie, like if you're at yearly deploys, that doesn't mean the magic number is 5,000 times a year all of a sudden. It just means probably better than what you thought. So slightly more. And you should have those long-term targets for every single one of your metrics. And if you ever come into a meeting and say, well, this other company does it this way, so we should do it that way. You have now alienated all of your stakeholders and you've probably created a bunch of enemies (laughs) at the same time. Yeah. And I, I agree. When I was doing consulting and was working with companies around transformation, there were, and granted this was you know, six years ago or whatnot. So, but I'm sure you would run into it still today is I talk to stakeholders and they'd say, I don't want to hear anybody else coming in and telling me how Netflix does stuff because guess what? I'm a bank, right? Or I'm, you know, I, we have a different scale. And I think the other thing to bear in mind with, uh, with DevOps FOMO is also always remember that what you're seeing people present on the stage is success, it's the rosy picture. And yep. so if you are listening and you are some type of a, someone who presents, actually much more interesting stories are your failures. Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. But, uh, and remember that some, the reason that you're hearing success stories is, is for multiple reasons. One is just from a personal perspective, we want to be, we feel better talking about things we did well. The other thing is some organizations aren't allowed to tell you about their failures. And uh, because PR departments or whatever are afraid that if someone finds out they ever made a mistake, then they would lose reputation and trust, which is also kind of not great. You know, I mean, if you're telling a story of a failure where, you know, you, I don't know, check keys into GitHub that you shouldn't have checked into, maybe, (laughs) you know, that exposed, you know, 13 million people's ATM pin numbers. Right. Yes. I mean, again, we can talk about blamelessness. That's great. But maybe you don't necessarily want to. I can understand how you don't want to advertise that. No, I, I, and, and I totally agree that like, you know, I, I like the example you gave, like, you know, we're not insert company here, we're a bank, or especially like, if you're in, in a more regulated industry, a lot of these things are a lot harder. But, you know, the the kind of flip side of that is like, you might not have the same constraints as, as, as some of those larger companies. So especially, let's say you're a smaller company. Yeah, you don't have a 300 person engineering team focusing on say that one problem, but the also reality is your, your code base and the complexity of your business is much smaller. Um, in the case of being a bank, you know, like your customers are demanding that consistency of the ledger is like the most important thing in the world. And so in a good way, like if you go back to your customers and say like, Hey, we, we, 
you know, we'd love to deliver you all these features, but do you, what do you care more about the bank, your bank balance being more accurate or a better way to, to access your account? Guess what? I'm going to say that number better be accurate. And if I get those other things, that's great. But again, the, this, that, that's a different um, constraint that other businesses have. So, you know, I always tell people is like as much as you can exploit those, those opportunities that your unique business has in the context of, of any transformation. All these things need to be tied back to business outcomes, which is, which is something we're not necessarily used to. We're used to being incented and understanding within kind of our microcosm of the company. And it's, I, I often say in, in, in my talks, I'll say, do you know how your company makes money? If not, go find out. I'll wait because you, and, and yes, I can understand you. Maybe you're not a for-profit organization, but you need to know what are the drivers of your business. And it's not surprising, I guess, but maybe sometimes a little frightening to how, how oftentimes we don't really know. I, I remember when I was working at apartments.com, there was one day we were doing kind of an office move. And so my team got, got put to on a different part of the floor a little early and we were sitting next to sales. And it was fascinating to spend a couple days listening to sales calls. And I said, well, I understand so much more about our business because of this. Whereas before I was just looking at it as it's a bunch of ones and zeros and there's some computers and they should be up all the time because if they're not, that seems bad. Right. You know, but understanding quantifiable things about what's the value of a lead. And if we're not sending them, what does that cost us? It, it helps make decisions. Again, like you said, if you have to be able to sit down and say, which is more important, prioritizing a feature that helps search or, a priority, or prioritizing a feature that ensures we deliver leads, which is what makes us money. Yeah. I, and, and I think that's, you know, one of the one of the unfortunate side effects I've seen from a lot of technology departments being so far removed from, um, you know, I hate using the term bean counters, but, you know, I think that is, th those are important relationships to build in any business where, you know, if you're, if you're an engineering leader and you can't answer the exact question that you just asked, which is how do you make money, then you fundamentally don't understand your customers and therefore you don't understand what's important to your business. And so, you know, another, you know, tactical item I always tell folks is go talk to your finance team, go talk to a product manager that can help you understand your customers a little bit better. And then as you can do that, then if you can map that back to a metric, that's even more powerful. And you know, I can give you, you know, two interesting examples. You know, when I worked at, at Amazon, um, we had the, the order graph and again, kind of, it now sounds obvious, but they didn't just stumble on that. It took them many tries to figure out what was the one right metric. And it was, you know, order, uh, orders over a period of time. Um, and Netflix, they've talked about this publicly, which is they look at the number of stream starts per Per minute, and they know that there's an expected range that that should be in, and if it's outside that range, then chances are there's an issue. Um, at PagerDuty, for us, it's you know there's a there's really three metrics that we look at. One is the availability of our endpoints. Then it's the uh, the time it takes us to to process from an event to incident to notification, and uh, the last is the overall. Uh, web experience that we have as measured by um, by our servers. And those are three metrics that we basically, you know, I tell a lot of my engineers, like, if we're looking to improve something like reliability at the company and it doesn't map back to one of these metrics, then we're either missing a metric, which can totally happen, or you're working on the wrong thing, so stop. 
it, it, it's so hard because I find that is you're defining those metrics and, you know, even I can talk about the Patriot case, like that actually took us years to get to a set of three metrics that, that we really cared about. And it's not because like we didn't care about our customers or anything like that, but we spent so much time debating, you know, what were the simplest possible metrics and, and most straightforward ones that our customers cared about that we could, we could easily instrument and, and measure. Cause look, you know, if I could measure like the amount of love that our customers have for our, our products, I, I would love that. I just don't know how to get it. You know, like, am I going to sit there asking our customers on every single, uh, every single time they use the product if they loved it or not no of course not so i have to <laughs> these proxies uh unfortunately and i think that's the the other thing that i'll add around any metric is that you know any metric that you have and with regards to impact of the business remember that they're they're proxies for the customer experience and, and impact to the business like you know if we for example um you know have the the number of um of the number of incidents that that we have at, at a company, does that mean we've doubled the customer positive the positive customer experience? No, of course not. But we know we've made it better, and that's the idea. Is that like if you look for like these like one to one mappings of like, well, I reduced the amount of downtime by X percent, therefore made the business X percent better. That's not how it works. Just know that you made it better, and that's enough. I think that's really key is, is again, it's, it's moving First of all, they're proxies and that's, that's hard because we want to see these to be exact and, and they're not. And which is some, sometimes surprising because we work with computers and we work in a world of abstractions. So abstractions shouldn't be that hard, but, but they are. And, and also it's, it's not about what the number is necessarily, unless it's an SLA or SLI, you know, unless it's something that you've contractually agreed to, or, or, or informally agreed to internally with like an OLA, yeah. it's, it's not a magic number. And it's, I also, I believe in questioning metrics um, because a lot of times we, first of all, we have the ability, which is great. We're going through a transformation. If we're at the beginning, we get to maybe set what some of those metrics are and that's awesome, but we don't always have that luxury. Sometimes we come in, the organization's already going through a change or we already have things. And I always recommend figuring out, asking why, why are we measuring this? Why, why do we believe this is a proxy for customer value? Um, and I've, I will tell you, you know, five nines, because it's more than four, that doesn't count. Right. right. Or, you know, our, our, our goal is to not have the site be slower than last, last month. You can't you know, you, you need some type of a, a line in the sand, even if it's not a direct number, but just to say like, we, we know, and and I've I've run into that experience before where I've said you know what are we trying to hit in certain certain things it's like okay let's just make the the needle move and sometimes we do need to have a certain number we're trying to hit certain thresholds you know especially something like page load time mm-hmm. and I've worked in several places where when I would question and say what is our goal not to be slower than last month okay well how is an engineer can I understand what's the right thing we're trying to do? If I'm trying to make a decision about adding this extra component on the page, not slower than last month is not something that I can test for and that I can understand. So it's always, it's, it's okay to question. No, I, I totally agree. And like, and I think especially at the you know, beginning of a transformation, you know, you, I think you should set some metrics up and have some goals attached to them, but 
you know, probably a, a month or two in, question the crap out of it. You know, make sure that like those are the appropriate metrics still. And you might discover new ones that would be better proxies for what you're what you're trying to measure and you know why this old manager who who would always tell me um be careful how you influence people and and he was telling me this i learned this lesson the hard way and i'll I'll try to quickly tell the story basically we were measuring availability um from a purely uh, server-side standpoint and it was basically looking at the the percentage of 200s and so what a, a very dutiful engineer decided to do was he would uh, he ended up capturing every 500 at the load balancer level and served it back up as a 200 as an empty 200 back to the user. So we're looking at these metrics and we look at the week over week and all of a sudden we see this amazing improvement and we're all just you know patting ourselves on the back, shaking each other's hands, congratulating each other, and then thankfully you know my manager was the one who asked, hey, do we actually? Do we actually know what happened here? And then we, you know, so later that afternoon we start digging in, and there's a couple of uh, face palms. We realize, you know, we had inadvertently set up the, the wrong incentives, and so we, you know, then reverted the change, and we went back to our management chain and explained to them, "Hey, remember that great improvement we just saw? Uh, you know, about that." And and you know, we we then had to take as a, as a management team, we kind of had to take a hard look at ourselves, and you know, basically ask ourselves, like, you know, are we setting the appropriate example ourselves but also like how are we influencing people and you know to to the point around what you were saying around like an engineer's day-to-day decision making like just just be careful because i find like if you solely and overly only focus on the metrics you can end up driving the exact opposite behavior of what you want uh andrew clay schaefer calls it the nash Perito equilibrium which i usually oversimplify to that people will work to the the metrics you give them to the detriment of your organization. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I, I've heard uh, Jess Humble tells an anecdotal story about uh, he was an organization he was helping out where they had a goal to add one test per sprint, which meant they had a lot of tests that were assert equals true. <laughs> they added some tests. They, they met the goal. They met the goal, right? And it's not that these are bad people, right? It's just sort of like you're like, okay, that's what you're going to measure me by, and I think it's dumb. I'll yeah. do it. Right. So it comes back to making sure as well that, that the folks who want to incent to this stuff understand the purpose of the metric. Right. You know, it's sort of getting the when you're trying to bring people along for the ride, there's a difference between being um, committed and being compliant. Mm-hmm. Right. And the compliant person is the OK, Arup, you told me to do this and you're my boss. So fine, mm-hmm. I will do it. And the committed person says, OK, I understand why we have to do this. So I'm along for the ride. And the thing is, it doesn't usually require a lot of converting people. It's usually just people tend to, to fall onto the compliance side rather than the committed side, usually because they're missing information. Because there's this sort of belief of, I don't, you know, there, it hasn't been explained. It hasn't been, uh, as, as you talked about before, right? They, they haven't understood the why behind it. Yeah. And that makes, and it, while that seems like extra effort, it makes a huge difference because someone who's committed versus someone who's compliant is someone who's going to be curious about your process. They're going to question it, which is good. You want that because it's continuous improvement. We want to be going back and looking at this stuff, like you said, and as we're reviewing it, maybe quarterly or whatever is the appropriate increment and saying like, okay, so we've been measuring this and I don't think that's actually turning out to be a good proxy. Yeah. Right? It's not actually helpful. 
and it's okay to make changes. It's encouraged. Yeah. Well, one, one, you know, kind of parallel that I think about every now and then is we, when we think about like the legal system, we think of the intent of a law versus the letter of a law. Right. And, you know, we see a lot of lawyers get up and they'll be, you know, arguing ad nauseum about the, the letter of a law. And then you have a, you know, a, an intelligent judge come in and say, look, look, buddy, I know exactly what you're trying to do, but that's not what that law was meant for. So stop trying to, to twist that, twist it to the letter of the law. Let's follow the, the intent of that law. And again, while we might not be be great at it, we do change laws, right? We do have amendments. We do have actual processes in place in the legal system. And I think of metrics in a, in a very similar way of like, you have to explain the intent of the metric versus just the following the letter of a metric. And you know, the second you run into the, like, if you ask, you know, an engineer, like, hey, why is that metric important? And they say like, oh, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm just shipping code to make sure the number goes in the right direction. You've lost. Like you're, you're, you're so far gone at that point. And, and I totally agree that you have to, to, to really, really take a step back and, and ask yourself whether, you know, probably once at least every quarter, like, do these metrics still make sense? Um, I'll give you one very specific example that, that I, I think went pretty well for me. And this is at PagerDuty. So um, I track uh, median pull requests duration. And it's, it's a metric that I measure not because I want engineers to like, you know, file a pull request and like close it immediately, but I use it as a, as a proxy to understand like, Hey, like, you know, are our testing environments working appropriately? Like are our teams actually reviewing code at a, at a reasonable pace or, you know, and, and answering a couple of those kinds of questions, but I specifically never set a goal against it because I actually always feared that it would set up the wrong behavior. And it's funny because one of, one of, um, one of our engineers uh, brought this to my intention. Like he, you know, he knew that I was looking at it and he basically said, he's like, you know, I could just open a bunch of pull requests and close them immediately. And that would make that metric go in the right direction, or he could do the opposite. And I told him like, yeah, that you absolutely could do that, but I'm trusting you not to gain the metric. And really the, what I was trying to get out of the metric was answering the question, like, does our tool chain support the, the behaviors that I want for engineers? And if not, then what do we need to go build? Why do we have to go automate? And it starts prompting some of those bigger discussions. And, you know, not once did I ever like, you know, pin an engineer down and say like, why did you take 26 hours versus 18 hours <laughs> to review someone's code? Like that's not at all the intent behind it. But, you know, interestingly enough, um, even without setting a goal against it, engineers were already figuring out, hey, like, I, I think I can game that. <laughs> I think that's really key to have measures that you don't have goals against, right? That you're looking at and they're just, uh, they're just kind of temperature, right? You kind of want to see that because it's going to influence something, a decision you're going to make. And it's, it's tricky because we're used to go, we're used to measuring things that we're going to be measured against. And again, uh, this is getting kind of into the ideas around incident response, but one, one of the things I've, I've, I've learned. So we talk a lot at PagerD in our response process about don't litigate severity, right? Which means during a call, don't argue about whether it's a sub one or a sub two. It's not the place for it. And so I, I give a lot of workshops around this process and that'll come up. And quite often people in the workshop will say, oh yeah, that happens a lot to us. And almost always the correlation between people who have challenges where severity is being argued about during a call their team or organization is measured by how many sub ones they have. 
as in that is how you know you're doing a good job. Their CIO or CTO or whomever has said, we have this sort of list and, you know, and probably all those managers get pulled into a meeting once a week or once a month and they look at it and they say, Roop, you had 10 sub ones last month. You were on the pig list, right? You better get your act together. Well, if that's happening, all that happens is the metric that, that, we, that we start to work towards is mean time to innocence. We just yeah. figure out how to not classify it as a sub one, just like, you know, you talked about with, with kind of redirecting 500s to 200, right? Okay. And because people are used to being measured and, and evaluated, I should say, according to metrics, it can take, that's, that's one of the things that uh, is one of the cultural changes say, okay, we're interested in measuring this because we want to understand, but this is not part of your performance plan. Yeah. We aren't saying you're doing a good or a bad job because of this. And like many things in a cultural change, people won't believe it till they see it, right? So you have to prove it. And trust is hard to earn and easy to lose. So, it, every, you know, it's uh, you can sit there and say, we're not going to measure you against this. We're not going to, you know, evaluate your performance against it. And over time, people will start to believe you. And then you'll do it. Yep. And then you're all the way, you're not even back to square one. You're, you're back in the negatives in that, in that trust collateral. So it, it, even though it's, it's going to be, uh, seem easy or by, you're going to, you're going to want to do that because it's not even because you want to punish people. Maybe you want to reward. And that's the other part about that too. Right. So if you're going to say, well, I won't, I'm not going to punish you by the number of sev ones, you almost don't need to celebrate the lack of them. Right. You kind of want to celebrate the fact that they happen. If anything else, that might make, you know, so it's. So kind of along those lines, uh, yeah. what are some of the what are some of the anti patterns that you see? What are yeah. what are some mud pies people can can step in? <laughs> I think, you know, one one expectation that a lot of folks have is that, you know, they don't think along the lines of continuous improvement. So they think these transformations are like one-off things. And so, you know, they think like, oh, it's, it's January 1. By July 1, I want the DevOps and we'll be done by then. And the reality is like, you know, anything else in, in good software engineering, you're never done. There's always this aspect of you're, you're constantly getting better. And while I find, yes, you can, have, you can, you can actually make some pretty – fast changes and, and rapidly change an organization over the course of months and years, know that you're in it for the, the long run. Know that this is not something that's going to end after a year and maybe you're sitting in a meeting, you question the metrics and now you have a new set of metrics and that's a good thing. That's, a, that's an aspect of, of continuous improvement. So I think you know, an anti-parent I see all the time is people thinking it's going to take a matter of, of weeks or months. And the reality is, is like, I even look at some of the, the small organizations I've worked with, it, it can take years. And so like, if you're in a place where, you know, you're year one into this kind of a transformation and you feel like you're not making enough progress, that's okay. Like, again, it can be frustrating, but don't be too harsh on yourself because these, you're basically, you know, the way I think about it is if it took you a decade to get into a problem, it's going to take at least a year to get out of it. And so if it took you five decades, again, this is completely made up ratios, but like, it's, but it's probably going to take you something like, you know, five years to get out of it with a lot of conviction and a lot of intent. So like, that's something to think about as well. Like, however long it took you to develop those bad habits, it's going to take some proportionate amount of time to get out of those bad habits. I think another one that I've seen is 
this desire to plan out the entire transformation before you start. Yeah. Um, and I, I see this a lot in, it tends to happen more in regulated industries. And I think because the culture has been used to punish mistakes. Yeah. Um, so I had one, one customer I worked for, worked with, who was a very large uh, insurance company. And we hit a point where we were going through, through trying to help them out. And this was six months of planning before they implemented the first thing they were doing with Chef, just the yeah. first little change. And we said, you know, at a certain point, you're, you're just stuck with analysis paralysis because here's the, the rub. You're never going to find everything. Right. Right. You know, you're as soon as soon as this encounters production, you're going to you're going to find something you miss no matter how diligent you feel like you're being. So you might as well control it for a small, small thing and then find out what happens as you go, rather than think you're going to be able to have the foresight to think of every single thing that might possibly go wrong, because I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how experienced you are. The real world will destroy all your plans. Well, you know, what is it? It's, you know, no, no plan. Like the, the second you start working on a plan, like it's already, yeah, like it's already useless though. Again, I think planning is, is helpful, but you know, I think a, a rigidity around sticking to a plan can be very dangerous. And again, going back to that whole idea of questioning things every, every, every so often is super important, but like, you know, with that though, again, kind of similarly, like with the anti-pattern is they assume these, you know, folks assume that these transition carry no risk. And I think that's a, that's a very dangerous assumption because something will go wrong. Something, you know, that you could not have predicted in a million years, or if you had tried to predict it, it would have taken you way too much time and effort to, to predict it. And so when you say to, you know, let's say you're a leader and, you're saying, hey, we're going to go through this transformation around the way we work, but we're going to do it in a way where we don't have any increased risk. You're being naive. And so that's where I go back to the start small, where at least, you know, you're, you are accepting that you're going to have a little bit more risk, but at least in a small, let's say it's one team, one project, one code base, whatever, the increased risk isn't that much. And it's totally worth that small amount of risk because you're going to learn so much that then in turn actually de-risks the project funnily enough, going forward. Yeah, like kind of minimizing the blast radius for the change. Yeah, exactly. And it, there's, I think there's a lot of interesting similarities um, when we think about chaos engineering and the principles around chaos engineering and then going through a change like this, which is, what do we do in chaos? We treat it as an experiment. Mm-hmm. We have a hypothesis that, okay, if we make this particular, and so in thinking of the same thing with a, with a, a transformation like this, if you think about it as an experiment, which is I have a hypothesis, which is that if we start pushing, uh, you know, start using trunk-based development, we will have better quality. Let's say that's my hypothesis. Okay, so I know some measures. I'm going to do the same thing I would do with a with chaos experiment. I'm going to limit the blast radius yeah. so I can understand. I'm going to know my measures so we can see if we need to, ma- to adjust as we go. And then it's going to be a learning experience. Yeah. And treating things as as experiments like that that might not be the right word to use because it might not instill (laughs) stakeholders with confidence you might you know come up with some some other vocabulary around it but the thing is if you if you can articulate those things it helps build some trust because then it's it's not a let's throw it against the wall and see what sticks it's it's done somewhat uh, methodically yeah methodically (laughs) yeah (laughs) And, and you also can understand whether or not it was successful or not. 
Uh, so look, I think words are incredibly important. And that's why I do like the word experiment quite a bit, because there's almost this like humble acknowledgement that like, hey, we're going to try this out and it might blow up. You know, it might not work. It might fail spectacularly. Again, limit the blast radius so it doesn't take out your business or anything like that, of course. But the word experiment, I think, implies that humility, which I think is super important when you're introducing a new idea to any organization around transformation. And the other thing that, like you said, was around this idea of like, hey, in an experiment, you have hypotheses that you're, that you're testing. And so you actually know ahead of time, like, hey, here's what we're looking at to know if it's if it's going to work or not. And so I think the word experiment is appropriate. Like, like you said, like maybe it is, maybe it does scare some of your stakeholders off. But what I find there is, you know, I always tell the stakeholders that, like, look, you know, I'll be the first to acknowledge if I if I screw up, and I will try to fix it as quickly as humanly possible, such that you know nothing bad really happens, and we'll learn a ton in the meantime. Can you think of any uh, any interesting success stories that you've that you've been a part of or that you've talked to? Because I know you talk to a lot of customers, and we made you know some of them you can talk about, I'm sure, and some of them you can't. Yeah. Uh, but what I, I'd be interested to kind of think about about successful transformations that you're aware of, and maybe see if we can think of anything that they have in common. Yeah. Well, you know, one interesting one that comes to mind just because you were talking about Chef, but like. Ironically enough, we so we've been using Chef at Pagery for you know coming up on seven years or so. Um, but before that, it, when we first introduced it, it was an experiment. You know, we you know Chef was a very you know different product back then. Of course, it wasn't you know rapidly becoming the industry standard like it is now. But back then, um, this whole idea of like infrastructure automation, all we had really was like CF Engine and Puppet, and and there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But it wasn't. Again, the whole idea of like infrastructure as code and immutable infrastructure, these weren't best practices like they are today. And so this is, you know, rewinding back seven years, that that was an experiment that that Pagery went through. And and um, you know, my one of my predecessors, he told the teams like, hey, we're we're gonna try this out. We don't know what the learning curve is going to be like. Most of us know Ruby, so we think it won't be too bad. But you know what? We might have to throw this all out and go with something else or or build even an in-house solution if this doesn't work. And what we found was, you know, most of the folks that, you know, were initially a little bit hesitant about it decided to, to give it a shot again because we called it an experiment. And there wasn't this, like, rigid, you have to do it edict down from above. It was, it was happening um, – uh, at the kind of lower levels of the organization. And over time, like then, you know, it probably took about a year and a half, but it just became the way. And it just magically, people got used to it. That's That was the way that people knew that if they want to, to build out uh, any infrastructure at the company, they had to use Chef. And that that worked well for us. Um, another, another big one, and you know, this is, I, I won't mention that my name was a customer of ours. Um, and they were, they were getting started with, with PagerDuty and their, their biggest fear was that a bunch of their engineers were going to, were going to quit if they, if they did the whole DevOps thing and put everyone on call. And the advice that I had given them was like, well, you know, don't put everyone on call tomorrow. Like you can have a target of that. That's fine, but just don't do it tomorrow. And again, they called it, you know, I told them use the word experiment and have like one or two metrics that you're tracking to see if the experiment was successful or not. And in a cool way, like they, they were, so funnily enough, one of the, the measurements they were using was number of engineers who quit. 
for, as a result of this. And they were correct. So, you know, and this is a very large organization around 5,000 people. And, and so they were actually measuring this over time as they were rolling out Patriot across the organization. If the number of people quitting as a result was getting too high, they actually would slow down the rollout because they knew that they hadn't done an effective of enough job of educating people on the importance of why they want to work in this different way. Um, but that was you know another successful experiment. It took them almost, what, I think close to a year, maybe a little bit over that. Um, but that was that was the way that they were measuring along like you know were engineers quitting and the answer over time was as they invested more and more into the context and, and educating their engineers that that number actually went down and i think with any kind of a uh, mark like that too you have to think about um, especially over a large sample set and a large amount of time how you're making sure that you're not conflating correlation with causation too because you know kind of look you want to you want to correct for things like oh well we had an acquisition during this time. Oh, and coincidentally, at the same time we rolled PagerDuty out to this team, they, they all got folded into another group. Okay, well, you know what? Maybe <laughs> maybe you have to correct for some of that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's, I, I like the idea of, of getting creative with those measures, right? Yeah. And, it's not, and it's not always going to be the same. Again, there's not, fortunately, we can't tell you. We gave you some good, some suggestions for some places to start, but you know your business better than we do. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> if you and don't go, go learn it and yeah go back. learn it go talk to your product managers go talk to your finance team because you know, at least you know one you know maybe this goes back to the tactics of it you know one tactic that i give every single leader if they can answer the question of how does your your business make money is go talk to your cfo or someone in your in that finance department and and you know i found that you know these are some of the folks that are just so willing to be uh transparent and they will educate you that was, you know, I learned this very early on in my career that if you keep your finance team happy, everything just kind of goes a little bit more smoothly. So when the AWS bill comes in, things, you know, conversations go a little bit more smoothly. But, um, but that was super important, and and you know, it, it helped me as 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 an engineer make better decisions. Um, in, in not just in like, you know, in terms of like organizational transformations, but it, it made me into a, a better leader because I knew that you know, if I make this decision, that here's the impact that they'll likely have on the rest of our business. And so again, as a tactic, go talk to your finance team if you struggle with articulating how your business makes money. Going to have to talk to people, folks. Sorry to report. Yeah, sorry. Can't, can't, can't boil everything down to a single shell script, unfortunately. Not yet. Now that what I suggest to people and is that if you, this is not a thing you want to do, if you're not good at, at selling change, or you're not good in that, find a buddy who is. Yeah. Find someone who can help. And because we are, we are greater than the sum of our parts. And the, the, the last little bit of collaboration to keep in mind is I'm a big believer in DevOps is, is, is probably no surprise to any listener to this show. It is incredibly unfortunately named. So make your tent big when you're, when you're collaborating and you're looking for people to, to come along. You know, it's not just about software engineers and SREs. It's your testers. It's your product folks. It's your FinOps people, right? It's your, like, like Rube said, your finance folks. Get them involved. Get, get your, your customers. Um, in, and they can be internal customers. So the, the more conversations you have, the more that people will understand why you're wanting to do these things and the more allies that you will build. 
Yeah, and you know, like, likewise, I have a, I have strong conviction that I think you know, the DevOps way of working, whatever, however you want to articulate it, is a better way of of working. But you know, to me, it's it's you know, when I think about DevOps, like it, it is that idea of like you as a as an engineer or as a leader in your organization you're willing to pull in whatever context, whoever stakeholders, you know, whatever you need to solve a problem and you own it, right? You, there's this idea of like, you know, there's, you, you don't throw things over the fence. And like you said, Maddie, that, that includes you are not allowed to throw problems over the fence to your product management team. You can't just say like, oh, well, you know, those darn product managers are making me do something, so I have to do it. That, that's not leadership, right? And to me, that goes against DevOps as well. If you don't bring them into the conversation and, and ask for their input on these ideas, then again, you, you end up just siloing yourself from, from those teams, which is very dangerous. I think that brings us to a pretty good wrapping up point. So if you are interested in sharing your DevOps transformation story, uh, there's a bunch of DevOps days that have open CFPs. So if you go to devopsdays.org slash speaking, you can find out all these places that are looking for folks. DevOps days is an event that I recommend for first time speakers because we that organize these events, we really like first time speakers and we like personal stories and we like to know what you've gone through. And if you're interested in, in getting into this and you got an idea and you need some help with it, you can always find me on Twitter at Matt Stratton. I'm, I'm happy to help and mentor new speakers and uh, specifically the CFD for DevOps Days Chicago is open right now. So really recommend you submit to that because that's my event and I'm in charge of picking the talks. So I want to make sure we've got some good ones. Uh, if you go over to arrestedevops.com slash DevOps magic, that's where this episode's show notes will exist. And uh, you also can sign up for our newsletter, all the Arrested DevOps stuff you could want. If you go to arresteddevops.com slash iTunes, uh, leave us a review in the iTunes store. That actually does help other people find the podcast. We're not just begging for reviews for validation. That's just a secondary uh, benefit of that. So please, please validate me in iTunes. So Arup, thanks for joining today. I'm really glad we got you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. So I'm Maddie at Matt Stratton. This is Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.